Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. Yes, I am going to be a bit like your average Russian cruise missile, veering off course, missing the target, and occasionally exploding in midair, because I don't use notes. So forgive me if things go a little haywire, a little crazy. But today's subject is missile, from tail chaser to top attack things that go bang in the night. And missiles seem to be everywhere in the news at the moment. They've often dominated the headlines over the years. And before we even start, we probably have to define what a missile is. Traditionally, originally, it was always a guided projectile, a self-powered guided projectile. But All these distinctions between rockets and missiles is becoming blurred because rockets today are often becoming guided. You look at what's happening to the old Hydra 70 2.75-inch rocket. It was an unguided, cheap rocket fired from helicopters and aircraft at the ground. Suddenly, it's been transformed with the laser guidance into the advanced precision kill weapon system. Is it a missile? Who knows? You look at the HIMARS rocket, the high-mobility artillery rocket system being used in Ukraine at the moment with a 50-mile range. But you look at other rockets or systems fired from the HIMARS platform, from the truck, or from the MLRS, and you have things like the ATACM, the Army Tactical Missile System, or you have the replacement to the ATACM. The ATACM has a range of 190 miles. The next generation is the Precision Strike Missile PRSM, and that will have a range of 300 miles. So watch this space and see if the redundant ATACM missiles with a range of 190 miles end up in Ukraine. I suspect they probably will. But there you see rockets being transformed into missiles. So the description of these systems can vary wildly. And things, of course, are changing. Not only are you getting old systems being given precision guidance, you have the debate over whether missiles should be stealthy or whether they should be hypersonic. You look at Russia. Russia loves its hypersonic weapons. You get the Kinzhal uh, air-launched cruise missile, hypersonic boost glide cruise missile. That's a rocket that powers it to hypersonic speeds and then it glides onto the target at long range. You then get the naval-launched Zircon missile, and that's another cruise missile, but it's a scramjet, and and that's hypersonic too. So the Russians have plainly gone for the hypersonic as the plural, the answer to everything. The Americans are a little behind the curve, but they have about a dozen hypersonic programs in development, and their first operational air-launched hypersonic weapon cruise missile uh, to attack ground targets will be the air-launched rapid response weapon, the ARRW. So you can see acronyms are everywhere. Back in the 1980s, it was so much simpler. There were just slickums and glickums, submarine-launched cruise missiles and ground-launched cruise missiles. But this is the world we're in today. And I said that 
missiles have often stolen the headlines, and they have throughout history, and certainly throughout the 20th century and right up to today. You look at the situation in Ukraine, everyone talks about patriot missiles uh, being sent to Ukraine. Um, patriot, incidentally, stands for phased array tracking radar for intercept on target. Talk about squeezing an acronym out of a name or a noun. But it's highly effective, particularly the PAC-3 version, the Patriot Advanced Capability 3. And it is this constant upgrade of these systems that has made a difference over the years. So Patriot is in the headlines. The Germans sending their RST service to our missile system or the Americans sending the NASAM system, the National Advanced Surface to our missile system to Ukraine. All these systems are coming in and making a huge difference. It is this constant development and counter-development of weapons and countermeasures that, that you see throughout history. And it's why the Ukrainians today managed to achieve a kill rate of up to 90% against Russian cruise missiles and almost 100% uh, regularly against the drones that Russia sends in, the Shahed 136 drones made in Iran. So this is the sort of constant cycle, and we're getting this in the news all the time. When it comes down to the Patriot, it's always been rumoured that, that it was sketched on the back of an envelope, the original concept by Norm Augustine, uh, a very charismatic chief executive of Martin Marietta and later Lockheed Martin, who had once been undersecretary for the army in the US in the mid-1970s. I had the good fortune of bumping into him a few times in the 1980s, and uh, he was a great character. But, but it's always said that he developed the Patriot, and uh, we can thank him for that today. But you go back further to things like the Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, that for obvious reasons dominated the media and the headlines of that age. I was born in November 1962, just as the four Russian Soviet uh, Foxtrot diesel electric submarines with their nuclear tipped torpedoes were heading back to their bases on the Kola Peninsula. So I feel I'm sort of invested in the whole arms race uh, era. And that was an extraordinary period for 13 days in October when the Americans blockaded Cuba and prevented the Soviets resupplying and building up their silos of medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Those were the R-12 and the R-14. The R-12 there were nine sites located uh, by U-2 spy planes. The R-14, which was inter intermediate range ballistic missile, about 2,800 mile range. There were about three of those located. So it was a real and present danger to the United States and the world was on the edge. But Khrushchev and the Soviets backed down eventually. So again, that stole the headlines. You can move on from that period to the Gulf War in 1991. And a friend of mine, Nick de la Casa, was the freelance cameraman who captured that moment when Tomahawk cruise missiles suddenly turned sharply at a road junction and headed towards their targets in Baghdad. That was when the world woke up to the potential of cruise missiles, what could be achieved, and the threat they could pose in the future. So 
it is this cycle of missile development that has captured the world's imagination and that goes back a long way. I thought it might be an idea to study how the world has changed, to take a conflict in the past with its missiles of the period and see how it might have altered in the present day environment. So the Falklands would be a good starting point because there the Argentinians invaded the Falklands, Britain sent a task force, it lost ships in the process, it lost men in the process. And the technology of the time, you can see some of it was pretty obsolete, obsolescent, some of it was quite advanced. If you take missiles of that era, like the Sea Dart missile, well, it was very good for its age. And, and later on, in 1991, a Sea Dart missile from HMS Gloucester uh, brought down a, a Chinese silkworm uh, anti-ship missile so fired by the Iranians uh, in the Gulf. So it had that capacity to shoot down anti-ship missiles. But unfortunately, in the Falklands, uh, French Exocet anti-ship missiles did manage to sink Royal Navy ships. There was another very good uh, surface-to-air missile, a point defense system uh, called the Seawolf. And that's only recently gone out of service in the Royal Navy, but it, but it was adapted over the years. But even back then, that missile was capable of shooting down a 4.5-inch uh, naval shell and had demonstrated that capability. So there were capabilities. But if you look overall at the conflict in air-to-air -air missiles, for example, today there are two large aircraft carriers uh, that could be sent. Back then, there was only HMS Invincible and HMS Hermes with at most a couple of dozen sea harriers armed with Sidewinder missiles. Today, you would have the ability to send 48 uh, F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, the uh, short takeoff vertical landing versions, and those could fire AMRAMs. There are also Meteor air-to-air -air missiles, long-range missiles. So the Argentinian Air Force would be taken out at much longer ranges. The Royal Navy could also fire Tomahawk cruise missiles from its nuclear submarines, which we didn't have that capability then. Um, the Tomahawks were not in Royal Navy service, so we could actually mount attacks on uh, Argentine air bases on the mainland and on the Argentine Ministry of Defence. On shore in the Falklands, we would have had surface-to-air missiles today, uh, such as shoulder-launched missiles like the Starstreak. On the ships, there would be the Sea Scepter missile. And one Type 26 frigate in this decade would be able to take out 48 enemy targets um, simultaneously with their Sea Scepter missiles that can intercept uh, a target the size of a tennis ball uh, at 15 plus miles, maybe out to 30 miles. So the capabilities are so much better today. The tracking radars are so much better today. But where did this all begin? Well, as usual, we might as well go back to the Second World War because it was the Germans who led the way, who pushed the development of all this technology. They are the founding fathers. So it's worth starting with that vengeance weapon, the V-2, for example, the world's first ballistic missile. 
And that was an extraordinary piece of kit. 1,400 were fired at the UK. Each had a one-ton warhead. So in terms of firepower, in terms of explosive capability, that's only 1,400 tons. That could be carried by a single large Royal Air Force Lancaster bomber raid in the, in the war. But the difference was that there was absolutely no countermeasure to the V-2 rocket. It had a huge psychological effect. And had the launch sites not been pushed back from The Hague, had they not been pushed back just as the V-1 doodlebug ramps were, were destroyed or pushed back from the coast, had those weapons not sort of been in action so late in the war, then the UK and the invasion of Normandy could have been in much greater trouble. And the technology at the time was revolutionary. Of course, it was down to Werner von Braun. The V2s were built uh, initially at Pienemunde in the Baltics and then in Nordhausen in those underground tunnels in the Harz Mountains. And by the end of the war, the Americans managed to capture a lot of the uh, German scientists, including Werner von Braun. They negotiated surrender with terms with them. They ended up with all the blueprints and the documents, 100 V-2 rockets. The Britain got about four V-2 rockets. The Russians, the Soviets, took over Pienemunde. So both sides had this seed capital, this this technology to build ballistic missiles. And that ended up with the Soviets developing their R-1 ballistic missile and the Americans developing their Redstone ballistic missile. That was the start. And you can see the sort of big, the, the sort of heritage of the V-2 running all the way through to today and the generations of intercontinental ballistic missiles that the U.S. has deployed from the Atlas through the Titan to the Minuteman, the Minuteman III, and on to today's Sentinel that is being deployed. And Again, you go from the R1 in the Soviet arsenal going through the R12 and R14s that were in Cuba and on to the Satan II that President Putin is so proud of today, his new intercontinental ballistic missile, apparently with 15 multiple independently targeted re-entry re vehicles, 15 warheads. So it's an extraordinary capability. I'm just amazed that Putin hasn't been uh, shown with his shirt off uh, straddling a Satan II missile because it's the kind of thing the nutty little goblin does. But this is how technology started. The V2, incidentally, was powered by liquid oxygen and liquid ethanol um, that boosted into the combustion chamber by hydrogen peroxide, an incredibly dangerous combination. They, they always say it took 30 tons of potatoes to make the liquid ethanol. And the V2 used up almost half or two-thirds of Germany's ethanol production by the end of the war. The Germans were amazingly good, have always been very good at turning uh, plowshares into swords or at least into missiles. Uh, they turned their hand to anything during the Second World War. In fact, during the First World War, the, the Zeppelins uh, used 250,000 um, cow stomachs just to make the hydrogen bags for a single Zeppelin. By the Second World War, they were using hydrogenation to turn coal dust into synthetic fuel.
they say in North Africa, the Africa Corps was using geraniums to, to create synthetic fuel. So it's amazing how war creates these, these situations where, where a sleight of hand by uh, transforming basic goods and technologies into, into war fighting capabilities are so important. And the Germans were very good at that. But that was the V2. The V1 we mentioned in our uh, podcast, the podcast on drones, Drone 2, and you know, over 6,500 were fired at the UK. And they had a very large warhead, and, but there were countermeasures, just as there are countermeasures in Ukraine today. And that really can be seen as the world's first cruise missile, or, or at least the world's first drone. But the Germans were not going to sit around. They they developed so many other technologies as well. The world's first guided um, air-to-surface missile, or at least glide bomb, the Fritz X, wire-guided. They produced the world's first air-to-air missile as well. Uh, this was designed to shoot down uh, Allied bombers uh, from beyond the range of the bomber's uh, protective uh, gun batteries on board. So, you know, this was called the Ruhrstahl uh, X-4 missile. It was wire-guided like the Fritz X bomb. And it wasn't that effective, but it, it was still in production by the end of the war. Not content with that, the Germans also were developing towards the end of the war the world's first surface-to-air missile, the Wasserfall, and that again was wire-guided and designed to take out slow-moving Allied bombers that were caught in the searchlights or caught on radar screens. So all across the, the sort of military spectrum that the Germans were pushing the boundaries of technological development. Uh, come the end of the war, that technology too fell into the hands of both the Soviets and the Allies in the West. And that started the sort of nascent industry in missile technology. So, Let's look at air-to-air missiles, for example. We, we've mentioned the X-4 missile from Germany. If you look at America's development of air-to-air missiles, you started with such things as the Ryan Firebird. It was a useless bit of kit, but it was of its time. It never went into production. It was very large, very heavy, only travelled at uh, 0.8, Mach 0.8, uh, so it was subsonic. Uh, it was cumbersome, and it was designed to be carried by the twin Mustang, the last prop-driven aircraft for the U.S. Air Force. But what came in after that was then the, the early types of air-to-air -air missiles, such as the Falcon, either infrared-guided or radar-guided. That, too, wasn't very popular or successful. But these were the beginnings of what was to come later, the, the, such missiles as the Sparrow missile or the Sidewinder missile. And the Sidewinder really changed everything. It came in in the 1950s. It was a short-range, infrared-guided air-to-air missile. What happened? The Taiwanese used it against the Chinese uh, in 1958. Um, one shot down a Chinese MiG-17. Another apparently got lodged in the tailpipe of the of another MiG-17. Uh, it landed. 
the Soviets got hold of it and reverse engineered it, and it became the K-13 missile in Soviet hands, a missile that is still used today in various places and upgrades. But, of course, the Sidewinder, in its latest version, is still being used today. So an extraordinarily successful uh, weapon. So you have the Sidewinder, you have longer-range missiles that came in in the 60s, 70s, such as the Phoenix on the American F-14 Tomcat. These were very long-range. I mean, that had 80-mile range. Six were carried on the F-14 Tomcat. And then today, you get the sort of new generation. And what has come in is not these wire-guided, command-to-line-of-sight, radio-operated missiles. You now have genuine fire and forget missiles. You can fire at multiple targets and the missiles with their active radars or passive homing will take care of the problem. So you got the arrival of the AMRAAM, the advanced medium range air to air missile. And following on from that, the Americans are going to introduce their joint advanced tactical missile. So the technology is always moving on and the precision, the lethality, the explosive power, uh, the, the precision is ever improving uh, in this realm. And of course, you know, the Soviets, or at least the Russians, have not been slow either in their missiles. Uh, they haven't done well in Ukraine, but they love their missile technology. And you look at the, the invention of things such as the R-37, the latest Russian missile carried by the MiG-31, and, and that has an amazing range. I mean, their, their, their interceptors carried by the Su-57 as well, There's their new stealth fighter. You know, that has a range of 180 miles and can take out high-speed targets uh, very precisely. But again, we'll see if the Russians have the ability to produce the numbers. One of the problems is reliability, corruption, their inability to produce sufficient quantities of, of the kit they need. But in air-to-air -air matters, um, there is this constant back and forth, this flow of countermeasures and weapons. There was, of course, after the Second World War, the, the creation of, of air-to-surface missiles as well, and that has seen uh, an equal and dramatic expansion of capabilities. I mean, in the post-war era, you had the bullpup missile used by the Americans in Vietnam, for example, a heavy missile, and that was uh, command-guided from the cockpit of the aircraft. It wasn't always popular, but it was eventually quite successful and had different warheads. A heavy warhead could even carry cluster munitions. Uh, after that, you got such things as a Maverick. And then, of course, talking about missiles that dominate the headlines, you got the Hellfire. And we saw how effective that was in such things as the Gulf War. 1991, the Hellfire played a key role when Apache helicopters took out in the opening stages, uh, Iraqi radar sites. So that has been incredibly useful. And again, the follow-on from the Hellfire is the joint air-to-ground missile, or the JAGM.
again, more acronyms. And you can see that the word J, joint, is creeping in to all these acronyms, all these names of missiles. And it shows that missiles are becoming more flexible. They're used by different services. Air-to-air -air missiles are now being used in, in surface-to-air roles. And you take, for example, the, the UK's ASRAM, Advanced Short Range Air to Air Missile, that has been adapted, changed, modified, given new capabilities, and has become the Sea Scepter missile on Royal Navy warships and the Sky Sabre, uh, common uh, anti air modular missile uh, to be used on, from the ground with land forces, with armies around the world. So, all this has changed. The technology is moving on, is driving forward. We've looked at air-to-air, -air, we've looked at air-to-surface, you know, running through the Bullpup, Maverick and Hellfire onto the Jagam. Longer range, you have missiles in the US inventory, cruise missiles, stealthy cruise missiles, such as the joint air-to-surface standoff missile. And the original version of that was 250 miles, but the extended range version is going to be 500 miles. You get the naval version of that, the anti-ship version, the long-range anti-ship missile, as it's called, the LRASM. And that has a range of 300 miles. So everything is changing. You, you compare that to the range of the Exocets and Harpoons in the late 1970s and 1980s. You know, they, they were under 100 miles, but the missile range now is increasing markedly and remarkably. And there's always this tension. Do you go for stealthy cruise missiles or go, do you go for hypersonic missiles? That's really the question for the future. So looking at surface-to-air missiles, how that has changed, we talked about the Wasserfall, the German surface-to-air missile that never went into production. And post-war, you got early American versions of the surface-to-air missile system like the SAM A1, you go through the 50s, 60s, 70s, you got the Hawk, you got the Bloodhound in uh, British service, you got shorter range uh, missiles. I mean, you got the Seacat missile, for example, used in the Falklands War, which was the world's first point defense naval surface to air missile system. And the technology was pretty basic. You had to steer it w with a joystick. And you can see how the technology has adapted, that missiles started with what it was called command to line of sight. You had to keep the crosshairs on the target and steer the missile onto that target. Then you got semi-automatic command to line of sight, where you simply kept the crosshairs on target and the missile guided itself. And then you got fire and forget what you have today. You have you know, versions of the uh, Hellfire missile in the US service, you have the Brimstone missile in UK and other countries' service. So the range, the technology, the capacity for fire and forget uh, has increased. You know, back in the Falklands War, you might have had the Milan anti-tank missile and you had to keep the crosshairs on the target. Today, you have the Javelin missile, and that is far and forget. You don't have to stare around to see that the missile hits the target. So all this is changing right across the theatre of battle. So that's air-to-air, -air, 
air to surface, surface to air. Then, of course, you have the longer range surface to air, and this is where we get into anti ballistic missile. Uh, systems and and this has become a, a key priority today, because the threat, the proliferation of ballistic missiles, is all too evident around the world. So, the Patriot, for example, is being given an anti-ballistic missile capability. The Americans have developed the THAAD, the Theater High Altitude Area Defense Missile. This has a range of about 120 miles. It can go exo-atmospheric, and it's there to destroy ballistic missiles, uh, at least medium and in intermediate range ballistic missiles, uh, uh, really out through the atmosphere. And these missiles, like the THAAD, like the Arrow 3 that has a longer range used by the Israelis, but developed by America and um, Israel, you know, these missiles are hit to kill. There's no point having an explosive warhead. They use high accuracy, usually infrared, and they have an ex a warhead that will um, kill the missile on impact. It's not going to produce a blast fragmentation because a ballistic missile sort of travels at such high speed that it will be past the area the, the, the lethal area of the of the incoming countermeasures, the surface to air missile, far too quickly. So that missile has to actually physically hit the ballistic missile. So that is the response, whether it's Iron Dome, Arrow 3 in Israel, or the THAAD in the United States. And the Americans have gone for a THAAD, very expensive system. It's about $700 million dollars uh, per battery, and that battery um, has six launchers, eight missiles per launcher, so 48 missiles ready to fire, and it, it is believed to be highly effective. But the ballistic missile threat they're facing is also growing. We've talked about America's new Sentinel ICBM. Well, Russia has its Satan too, but other countries are also developing. If Russia has 6,000 nuclear warheads, America has about, it's believed, about 5,200. But the other countries that are coming into play include China. All these nations have about 400 uh, silo-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, and China is among them. They are developing their Dongfeng-41 intercontinental ballistic missile. They say it carries 10 nuclear warheads a missile. It may be as low as three, but it shows that the Chinese are making huge strides in this area. Uh, worrying also is what North Korea is doing, probably with Chinese help, maybe with Pakistani help, and of course, uh, Soviet engineers, Soviet era engineers as well. Everyone was hoovering up the technology to try and develop their ballistic missiles. So the Hwasong-17 is what the North Koreans are beginning to deploy, and that is their first genuine uh, intercontinental ballistic missile that could actually strike the United States. And 
This has created what is called the instability paradox that rather than creating a world of deterrence and detente where everyone knows the rules, what it has created are rogue states with nuclear weapons who think they can get away literally with murder or attacking other countries. So you look at North Korea, you look at Iran's program, which is no doubt underway and that is an extreme concern. And you, of course, have countries like India and Pakistan with growing numbers of nuclear ballistic missiles. The Indians have their Agni missile. So if you're looking for conflicts in the future, you can look to areas such as China and India or India and Pakistan or North Korea versus the rest of the world or Iran versus the West or the rest of the world. And it is deeply concerning. So don't look at Russia really for the doomsday clock to see that hand moving forward. Look to the other areas of the world where proliferation is moving ahead because that is where there are no rules, where the gloves are off and where ambitious and lunatic regimes could well overreach and overstep the mark. So that's really the world of missiles and how they've developed and how there are now anti-ballistic missiles, there are um, different sorts of processes and technologies. And the technology has come a long way from the original scientists and the original research done by the Nazis during World War II. And that really brings me to the postscript because... I don't want to talk about missiles. What I want to talk about is the next stage, and that is probably going to be directed energy weapons. Because in terms of working out cost per hit, cost per kill, laser weapons, for example, are so much cheaper, so much easier to handle than the logistics and the supply and the production lines required to produce missiles in large quantities. And the technology is just beginning to bear fruit, is just beginning to become mature enough to be deployed. And first of all, there are, if you're talking directed energy, you can talk about particle weapons. And the US deployed its first experimental particle beam device in space in 1989. So you can see that, you know, it's part of the Strategic Defense Initiative. So you can see that that technology was being looked at, at and developed. Um, you're getting microwave weapons being developed and deployed. It's said that the Chinese have already used it against Indian forces somewhere in the Himalayas. So that sort of radiation uh, devices uh, are certainly going to be used by militaries in the future. But it is lasers that are really going to come to the fore in the next few years. And you're seeing the, the beginnings of a deployment of these weapons. In the UK, there's a system called Dragonfire, and that's in the sort of 50 kilowatt category, and that will become more powerful over time. And a 50 kilowatt, 60 kilowatt laser beam is capable of taking out shells, mortar bombs, and drones. And 
more powerful ones be able to take out aircraft as well. And it's no coincidence that uh, the Tempest program, the UK's sixth generation fighter program, is looking to deploy laser weapons, directed energy weapons on board the aircraft because power generation is becoming better. Um, power production, power storage in batteries is becoming better. In the US, Lockheed Martin has just handed over its first 300 kilowatt laser uh, to the US military uh, to be assessed. So the, the, the ability, the power, the capabilities of these laser systems is increasing by the year. And, and that is what we need to look at for the future. And that is what we have to look at in terms of bringing down, countering the weapons, the cruise missiles and the ballistic missiles in years to come. You, you see today, you know, the, the cheap the cheap end of the spectrum in terms of anti-drone technology, that the US is sending the vampire um, anti-drone system, air defense system to Ukraine. And that just uses Hydra 70 rockets, the advanced precision kill weapon system with laser technology. You know, those old rockets, those 2.75 inch rockets, you're also getting stinger missiles on the Boeing Avenger surface to air missile system with, with a pod of stingers. But but that is today's technology. Tomorrow it will be lasers. So that just about wraps it up, both for missiles and for lasers, for directed energy weapons. And there are other technologies as well. There are electromagnetic railguns that can fire uh, solid shot, solid shells to hundreds of miles at high speed. And that research is still continuing in spite of cutbacks on the program by the US Navy. So we'll do future podcasts on technological development, but I thought it would be worth looking at the missiles of yesteryear and today. That's all for today. Goodbye. Very impressive, Jamie. No notes. All from memory. Perhaps I should send out a test paper to our enthusiastic listener. However, so it goes. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History Bloody Bites. You can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>